When you hear the phrase, soft as steel, what do you think of? While the word steel might conjure up images such as massive high-rise buildings, where does the soft part come in? And what exactly does this mean in our work and in our lives? Welcome to the Soft as Steel podcast with your host, Dennis Duran, featuring engaging conversations with a wide range of industry leaders around soft skills, how we practice love, inclusion, social justice, and compassionate leadership that's everlasting in the workplace. And now, here's Dennis Duran. Today's going to be fun. I've been blessed to meet some interesting, impactful, and fun people. My guest today is absolutely all of this and more. Jess Hernandez says that he is a construction mind shifter, building a community of intentional leaders known as the emotional bungee jumpers, who, I mean, wow, he has had a long career in construction, first working for a mechanical contractor. His journey since is interesting, to say the least. So Jess knows the construction industry. Jess is an accomplished podcaster. His show, Learnings and Missteps, is a podcast committed to enhancing the image of careers in the construction trades. He accomplishes this by interviewing the men and women who have built careers in the construction industry. He's also the co-host of a live stream show titled No BS with Jen and Jess. Jess and his co-hosts both began their careers in the trades. Their beginnings have enabled them to have empathy for the worker, which drives their efforts to elevate respect and reverence for the trades. Jess and Jen, interesting combination. I listened to uh, one of your episodes. Jess, welcome to the Softest Steel podcast. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. It's been a while. It's been in the oven for a minute, and now we're here. Now we're about to cook it until it's uneatable. Yeah. <laughs> I want to just jump right in. You know, I think your mind shifter thing is interesting. So it's not a major element of our conversation, but how and why and what does it mean to you to say that you're a mind shifter? You know, that's a beautiful question. And you're the first that's ever asked it. So thank you for that. The mind shifting thing comes from the earliest inkling of it came when I was in charge of like training and development back when I was working for a mechanical contractor. A buddy of mine, Mauricio Payan, he's a pretty good artist. So he drew a picture of a landscape with a couple guys over on the fence, a horse and a guy whispering to the horse. I was the guy whispering to the horse. The horse represented the field staff and the guys hanging out on the fence were like asking each other, do you trust him? Does he know what he's talking about? And so he like labeled me the workhorse whisperer. This was 15, 20 years ago. What he was alluding to was this mind shifting thing, right? The ability to connect with people and influence people to try something new, to give something a shot, to give a little excitement about it, and maybe shift their mind just a little bit about what they assumed the outcome would be or what the intent was. And so over the years, accidentally, I've kind of, I think, built or developed that skill. Mm-hmm. And more recently, we'll say in the last five years or so, people have told me directly how I've helped them shift their mind about different things that they were opposed to or fearful of, et cetera. And I decided to use the, like while I was building my website and needed a tagline for my business. And the tagline was delivering mind shifting experiences. And so mind shifter was just a natural 
piece to add into the bio on, on all the socials, et cetera. Your mind shifting. Is it your calling? Ooh, that's a great question. I don't know. No, it's not my calling. I think it's a natural skill, natural gift that I was blessed with, that I used and abused for a very long time. And then I learned how to use my powers for good. So I think it's a natural gift and talent. Maybe not my calling, because obviously I can use it for nefarious reasons. Hmm. And I choose not to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So when you began your career in podcasting, what was the inspiration to get started with that? Oh, my God. So podcasting came from COVID, the lockdown. So before COVID happened, you know, in my career, I found as much, I guess by the time I got to the superintendent level working in the field, I found any excuse to interact with educators, parents, and students about careers in the industry because I didn't know that it could be this awesome. And, and I knew there weren't many people talking about them. So I'd go to schools and functions and different things to talk about it. Uh, the pandemic hit school shut down. My job at the time, I was traveling the country uh, supporting a lean initiative. My travel got cut. They said, stay home, work from home, figure that out. And so I needed an outlet. And I was whining about, oh my goodness, poor me, here I am at home and can't you know, go talk to the schools. The, the need to, to serve or do something outside of myself for others was heavy. And and I was watching a biopic of Danny Trejo. <laughs> and for whatever reason, part of his message helped me see, like, stop complaining. You have all the resources possible. You can make something happen. Um, I had been interviewed by my friend Adam Gates. He's an architect here in San Antonio. Uh, he had interviewed me on his podcast maybe a year prior. So I hit him up. I said, hey, I, I want to do this. <laughs> He said, what, like, what do I need to do? And he says, well, you have a laptop, you have a headset. Like, yep. He says, you're ready to start a podcast. <laughs> and, and, and so that was the deal, right? It was, I decided like, okay, I want to, I want to celebrate careers in the trades. And because of the podcast, I could do it a little differently. You know, I wasn't talking about annual income and career, like degrees or any of that. What I really wanted to do was demonstrate to people or, or introduce to the general public the, the spectacular side of, of craft professionals and construction professionals, because, you know, I get the, so, so many times I've been introduced at parties and to friends and what do you do? And so I'm in construction, I'm like, oh, construction, right? Mm -hmm. and so there's like this assumption that folks in construction don't have um, passion for things or maybe lack a certain level of intellect. And, and I wanted to show people again, the magical side of these folks. And so I started interviewing people to find out or to help highlight all the amazing things that they were doing within their community. Um, the facts of life is not a straight line <laughs> and what, what footprint they want to leave on the wor world going forward. Again, to show that Yes, they're professionals. Yes, they're in construction, and they're doing spectacular, amazing things. Um, and so that's that's what it became. That was the whole purpose behind it, and it hasn't died yet. <laughs> so they're doing spectacular things 
when when you say that to someone who you're trying to inform, um, what how do they react, and what do you say to follow up on that? Yeah, a lot of times the response is like, "How much do they make?" <laughs> or "Oh, they start their own business." I'm like, "Yeah, th- like those things too." Um, so I always kind of default to to Fernando. Fernando was like the avatar, the image of the person that I wanted to highlight because. He's, he's the person, he's episode number three, sheet metal mechanic. Um, I was pressuring him and bugging him to be a foreman. Finally, one day he sat me to the side and said, Jess, I don't want to be a foreman. I'm not obsessed about the job the way you are. I just adopted my grandkids. I, I, I'm involved heavily in this nonprofit group where we do fan drives and toy drives and all kinds of stuff for uh, an underserved part of our community here in San Antonio. And if I took that job, I would have to leave my wife alone longer and I wouldn't be able to volunteer and serve in the manner that I'm serving right now. And and in that moment, it was like, when I talk about spectacular, he was making a conscious decision to leave a promotion and leave, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 on the table so that he can serve in a greater manner. Mm -hmm. He was sacrificing his own um, we'll say financial gain and status maybe, uh, and personal time to do all these things for the community. Now, if you look at when the picture of Fernando, it's the Lokes, right? It's the dark sunglasses wrap around, bandana, ponytail, big stocky dude riding a Harley. Mm-hmm. Nobody assumes that that person is serving his community, and he was. And so that's the example. I, I always because it's easy, right? Because that one's a beautiful one. And Fernando, I owe him a lot because he really helped me come up uh, through the trades when I was an apprentice. He knew me back when I was an apprentice, so he's got all kinds of dirt on me. Um, but that's the story I share, and he's not the only one. There's, I mean, every single person I've interviewed, they're doing heroic things in their home, within their community, within their business, um, and they're also construction workers. So, so you actually, when you use the word spectacular, you're really talking more about, uh, at least as much, if not more, about who the person is in their fuller life. Uh, you nailed and, it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and that's, and you use those stories to, uh, to help people understand that there are, there are people who are uh, gifted in, in crafts. Uh, we call them tradespeople, um, but they they also are are, are much more than that um, by virtue of other other choices and other things that they use their time for, and 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 that's something which is in your view uh, there are there are many or at least more if not many people like that in construction. Oh yeah, tons, tons. and. And to the point that if it wasn't for the fact that there were so many and still are so many folks of that caliber, that they motivated me and inspired me to continue to grow and learn and figure out how to finally serve and use my gifts and talents in service to others. Like if it wasn't for how big a game they played, I would have kept playing the small game and just chasing the dollar. Mm Mm-hmm. What, when you talk to young people, which I imagine you do, high school age and, and folks of that, of that, that, uh, in that, in that generation, um, and you talk about uh, what a great, uh, great opportunity construction is, um, do you tell those stories about, uh, about uh, 
the individuals making choices in terms of how they use their time, uh, being active in their communities, being great family people, uh, in addition to being just incredibly talented professionals in a craft, um, and, and how do they respond to it? Yes, I will. It's fun. Here's just like it depends on the age group, right? The younger they get, the more apt they are to ask how much I make. And I don't mm-hmm. like I don't mind telling them. So, you know, the complexity of their questions differ. And so middle school and high school is like the ideal spot for me to really talk about uh, the types of people, or the caliber of people that are in the industry and and the opportunity like it's not necessarily the opportunity within the industry. Cause I think there's opportunity in any industry. I think it's the conditions that construction is, or being a craft person is meaning we're given a pile of material, a pile of information and a timeline, and we have to figure out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that people before us didn't, you know, design and do a lot of really fancy math to, to get it to that state. But we have to transform that information and that material into something usable that is going to be in existence for a very long time. And we do that every single day. And so what that creates is a knowledge or an awareness that we can transform the con- our surrounding, our environment with our bare hands, with our knowledge and some sweat. And so when I'm talking to high school students, I'm really talking to them about that. Like mm-hmm. the figuring it out element of what building and construction, even uh, service and repair maintenance is, figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for students like me, the construction environment, for me, what I really try to highlight, and I know what helped me say that's what I'm going to do, is the amount of noise was good because all my ticks were hidden. Um, the competitive environment was excellent because I am a competitive person. The physicality of the work, the sense, the dense sensory input that I was getting every day helped me stay calm, focused, learn, and 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 grow. Mm-hmm. Whereas the classroom environment or office environment, it's not loud enough for me to hide in. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's not enough sensory input to help me stay calm. And so I help them to understand, like, if you have that type of energy, this may be the best conditions for you. And at all costs, please understand the conditions that you thrive in. Because if you need a controlled environment that's pretty static, that's stable, that doesn't change very much, construction is not the place for you. Um, And so what I'm trying to do is inform them of, like, stop, like, yes, you know, money, that's kind of important. But... Think about the conditions that you grow in and you can design and pick or even cultivate the conditions that are going to help you thrive and grow as an individual. And that's up to you. Mm -hmm. So that that, uh, ninth, 10th, 11th grader says, uh, you know, instead of a question, he says something like the following, you know, know, everyone's around sea construction and they, they look really dirty. You know, and it, and it looks like they like they really had to work hard. What does Jess say to those folks? I say, yeah, <laughs> that's the part. If you if you're okay with like that's the other thing. Like it doesn't matter what you choose. Anything you choose is going to take effort and sacrifice. You're going to have to learn, build new skills, 
do things dumb, mess them up, figure it out and get better. So that that's a truth no matter what profession you pick. Now, if you enjoy being dirty and sweaty, or maybe you don't mind it so much, mm-hmm. yes, it's hard work. A hundred percent, it's hard work. For me, it's easier to do that than it is to sit quiet and not move. Like, I, no way, I cannot do that. Um, and, and so there's that element of it. Now, the other part is, I guess, and you can choose to stay in that, we'll say, level Mm-hmm. of earning within the industry, meaning dirty and sweating, putting your hands on stuff. And, and you can also choose to progress your career beyond that. You foreman, you'll be superintendent, project manager. There's all kinds of different jobs within construction that don't require you to be sweaty and dirty. Mm-hmm. None of them are any easier, uh, but the physical element and working in the elements in, on the building construction side, trade side, is a huge factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get to say, no, I don't want to do that. And if you don't, you got to find another industry to work in. Mm-hmm. When you engage with these students, you, know, you get a sense of how many of you, how, how many of them you've actually affected to end up pursuing, you know, looking into apprenticeship programs or thinking about trade schools or those kinds of things. Do you have any feel for, you know, how, how well you're doing selling the construction industry? Yeah, you know, not so much anymore. Back when I was uh, working for the mechanical contractor, I absolutely did. Um, And part of that was because we were strategic in connecting with CTE programs. Um, And so these students were already in construction trades or some kind of construction-related thing, uh, Mm -hmm. curriculum. And and so they are read. I mean, that was like predetermined that they have an interest in the industry. Um, now I'll, I'll share this. <laughs> we had crafted an internship program for students below the age of 18 because they can actually work in the field. There's some things that you got to work through insurance wise, um, so that they can be in the field, putting their hands on tools and stuff. Uh, but it is a possibility. Like we did it anyhow, as we were developing that program, I was hiring high school grads to come work with us. Oh, and the intent was to hire them long-term. The educators, I got them from three or four different schools. The educators kept giving me their straight A students. Mm. And that first summer, they didn't do so well. And it was kind of baffling, right? Um, second summer, we came back and I said, okay, the group that you're giving me, it's not working out. Like they, they quit and there's our guys are frustrated with them. And so I finally said, here's what I need. This, here's like, I don't need the straight A student. Please don't give me the straight A student. I need the students that have been in some sort of extracurricular activity that required them to be at school before everybody else had to be there. That required them to be after school, after everyone had left. That required them to be on a team. And if their grades are Bs, Cs, and Ds, I don't care. Um, if, they kind of, if they're kind of mouthy and pushback and, and troublemakers, I don't care. This is what I need. When we started getting those kids, they did really, really well. <laughs> Surprisingly, like, you know, they had mouths on them, but we all do. And what I, what I, when I went back and reflected with with our team members, the straight A students would not make a decision. They would only do what they were told. The other kids, the troublemakers, the tough ones, they were used to figuring things out on their own, and they weren't scared of messing up or getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 
in terms of like which ones do I see actually making it a career and and going the long way uh, on the trade side of it, it would be those students. And of course, when we got them through the internship, that opened up a whole new pool of students that was very easy to discern whether they were going to make it through four years of apprenticeship or work the summer and split. What were the things that you saw in them that was was predictive of, of them being successful? What did you see in them? So, yeah, so the, the first thing was figuring out how to get to the job site on time, <laughs> which sounds generic, yeah, right? Like yeah. be on time. But these kids didn't have cars, right? There was one kid, he didn't have a vehicle. His parents didn't, like they, they got around on public transportation. The job site's 90 minutes away from him on the bus, Mm-hmm. And he was able to find his way there. Like he did what he needed to mm-hmm. do to get there um, mm-hmm. or showing up <laughs> and, and asking questions like following directions explicitly and also asking like, okay, what am I going to do next? Mm-hmm. That always seemed like, oh, there's something with that kid. What am I going to do next? Cause in their mind, they've completed it. Um, some kids, some of those students, you know, they would, <laughs> They would drive up at 6.59 and drag their heels to, uh, whatchamacallit, to stretch and flex. Mm-hmm. And then by the, you know, a month or two later, they were gone, mostly because they didn't like waking up early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like there was the two things. One was an intense appetite to learn. That's the like, what am I going to do next? Mm-hmm. Um, the other was how like their threshold for discomfort or um, maybe low convenience, like some kids, if it was, Oh, I got to drive all the way to that side of town. Like, yeah. (laughs) Well, is there another option? Like, okay, good indicator. You may not be here long-term. The other kid said, okay, I got to be there at seven. I'll figure out how to get there. Um, So the level for, you know, their threshold for inconvenience uh, or discomfort they had a high threshold, they were going to make it. Hmm. Makes sense. Um, over these last few years, what have, what have you seen in terms of uh, the, the uh, potentially increasing numbers of programs designed to identify and try to attract uh, young people into the industry? What's, what's been going on the last few years that you've seen? And- yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to vent a little here. <laughs> I see a lot of people complaining about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a whole bunch of people complaining about the labor shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get it, right? Because it's painful. It's very difficult. Uh, now, where I see a, like a good, strong, repeatable um, methods or processes is is kind of in recruiting from, from university, right? So we're looking for different level of folks coming into the industry. They do real good there. Uh, but when it comes to recruiting into the trade space, it's this, it's gotten a little better. There's a whole bunch of, like here in San Antonio, there's a whole bunch of outfits that have started their own internship program that puts kids, like they're still in high school, over 16 years old. They work them over the summer. They put them into an intern, um, that internship program. Once they graduate, they get them in an apprenticeship program. They have a whole track for them to excel as much as they want. Mm-hmm. That was absent 10 years ago. So that's happening here in San Antonio. There's a whole bunch of um, trade or organizations that are really focused on ex- bringing back the trade. Steve Turner has his scholarship out there. 
Um, so there's a lot of energy around introducing trades to high schools and middle schools, which I think is phenomenal. The problem and the irritation for me is it doesn't matter if the trade contractors aren't hiring the kids. <laughs> like, right. who cares, right? Well, if you need them, and you know, I had to overcome the same thing. I had to have my own mind shift when I was in charge of labor and I was out recruiting uh, personnel. And I had to say, we got to try a new pool. And I got a lot of pushback for it. Um, and so same thing, we bring, uh, we'll just say companies that are hiring employers. We just had one this week, last week here in San Antonio, we had the construction career day. Almost 900 students from around region 20 here in South Central Texas. Uh, I don't know, we had 40, 50 different vendors there, employers. Um, some weren't hiring, some were there so that their brand could be seen. Yeah. <laughs> Others are stuck on, but they're kids. It's like, sure, <laughs> but you need labor. So it's kind of like this thing these, these schools are now graduating high school students with an OSHA 10 certification, with basic knowledge of plumbing system, electrical systems, uh, tools, safety. Like they're coming out of high school with that knowledge base mm -hmm. and still not getting hired. So that's mm. not that's not the, the the education system's problem. That's the employer's problem. And right. so I think, yes, yes, there's a labor shortage, but construct or trade contractors are doing a pretty miserable job at hiring uh, younger individuals. Just bottom line. Um, and I'd love for people to like rebut that in the comments of when you post this mm -hmm. uh, and list the name of their company and their contact info so that high school students can go reach out to them and go work for them. Because mm -hmm. that's all we need to do is connect them. That's it. Yeah. Why do, why do you think the employers uh, are balking at the, taking the step of hiring that, that individual, that young person who is of age uh, and has a, a level of preparation that his uh, previous generations and others coming in the, in the industry years ago did not have. Why are they balking? Yeah, I, you know, I can, I'll speak for the, the, the people that I worked with directly, because it was funny. We did this internship program thing, and everybody told me, I'm not a babysitter. I don't have time to be holding their hand and teaching them stuff, and I ain't got, somebody's going to get hurt, and their kids, and wah, wah, wah. I said, fine. You're not, because I we were very intentional around um, identifying like a mentor that was going to be paired up with this high school student and to kind of walk them through the thing and assign them the task and keep an eye on them and keep them safe and make sure they were learning the different things they were supposed to be learning. Um, about three weeks into the program, when the kids finished high, finished for the summer and came to work for us, about three weeks in, People were like, Jess, like, why didn't I get an intern? I said, because you're a chicken, right? You're a big, scary boy. So we weren't going to do it. So I'd say the biggest problem is their perspective, their mind, right? Like they, they think that they're kids and they're going to have to be babysat. Mm -hmm. They're adults now and they're going to have to be developed. Yes, just mm -hmm. like every single one of us was. So I think the biggest issue is they've just never done it. And they don't know what to expect. And it's kind of funny. It's like, okay, so then my experience was at the time we were hiring the same guys 
and they were making the the loop around, right? They'd come in, they'd work for us for three, six, nine months. We'd lay them off or let them go for whatever. They'd go chase a 50 cent, 75 cent raise somewhere, come back around. And I was paying 50, 75, a dollar, $1.50, $2 more every time he made that loop. And so my cost kept going up, but the return stayed the same. They didn't upskill. They didn't learn anything new. Mm -hmm. These high school students were hungry (laughs) and excited to come to work. And so think about this. The energy they brought was 18 years old, or yeah, we'll say 18 years old, living at home, working full time, 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday, 7 to 3.30. Mm-hmm. Their peers are all working odd jobs, working weird hours, unreliable schedules, unreliable shifts, nights and weekends. So they loved this job mm-hmm. and benefits and all the other stuff. They came to work with an enthusiasm that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, the 20, 22, 23 year old that had a family, has got a car, has got rent, got all that pressure was coming to work, making we'll say two, maybe $3 more an hour than this high school student. How enthused do you think they were? They weren't because they had the whole, all the pressures of life on them. Anyhow, when we, like, we had to take the jump. We had to try something different. We did. We paid very close attention to it. We learned there was, you know, there were some bad hires, there were some bad assignments, but over time we got pretty good at it. Um, and it, and it created a pipeline, right? Cause then those kids were telling their friends and the next year, the friends were lining up to, for us at the, uh, college or career day or whatever it was. Um, and so we were able to keep recruiting those students, but still people want to know, like, how do you know, like, how do you pick the best one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Pick a bunch of them. One of them will be the best one. Uh, mm-hmm. if you pick one, just tell yourself they're the best one. Um, and it, and so I think it's that. I think the biggest thing is they've never done it. There's such a, a gap between the you know the high school students that they may be recruiting and the the average age of the tradesmen or, or um, journeymen within the organization that it just seems super foreign. Now the other thing, <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble for this one, but the other truth is a lot of those journeymen. HR ops people that are trying, struggling with making the decision, they have kids the same age. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're assuming that every kid is as dumb as their kid. That may not be a nice (laughs) mistake, but I think they're projecting what they experience or their disappointment with their own kids on this whole other group of kids that they've never even met. Mm -hmm. Call that generational bias. Generational bias. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I, I was saying just in front of a class of supervisors, foremen, superintendents, just the end of the last week, we were talking about generational stuff. And I said, you know, everybody still talks about the millennial being lazy, entitled, not good workers, not willing to work hard, on and on and on. I said, you know what? I said, if you're really honest with yourself and you think back on our generation, whatever generation you are, they were saying the same things about us when we were at the same age as those millennials are now. And it's hard to argue that. But the mind shifter is working on that problem, the mind shifter. Absolutely. So my last, is just the last question, because believe it or not, we're out of time already. That's ridiculous. It seems unfair. It seems unfair. Yeah. Well, you know, but the recording doesn't lie. What's the most significant thing that you believe the industry, and I mean the industry at its highest levels of leadership, 
needs to do to try to accelerate the attraction, retention, and development of the personnel they need to replace the ones that are retiring, in addition to dealing with the various and, in some places, increasing demands for personnel, for people? Yes. What do they got to do? This is really, really complicated. It's an ancient technology that many of us have forgotten about, and it's called listening. <laughs> what? What was that? <laughs> exactly. You know, especially progressing through careers, right? We are all well-trained and educated on how to get a message across, how to package the right delivery, how to introduce ourselves. But we're horrible at listening to understand where the other person is coming from. And it's funny because we sit in round tables, right? With all these professionals from whatever, workforce development and local community stuff and high schools and da, 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 asking each other, why aren't kids coming into the industry? And there ain't nobody in the room that's under 25. Mm -hmm. You're asking the wrong person. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because I've seen there's several courageous leaders that I've worked with and that I currently serve as well, that are very purposefully listening to the pains, the wants of their people. And they're taking effort to minimize the burden that their people are experiencing. And when we do that, those people all of a sudden realize or find the little bandwidth of interest and energy to go and do something more for the organization. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about listening, listen with our eyes, listen with our ears, pay attention to what's bringing pain to the people that we serve, mm -hmm. and then do something to minimize that pain. If we do that, it will cascade throughout the organization. And the answers that we're seeking, there's no silver bullet, the answers that we're seeking, we will start asking the people that have the answer. Mm -hmm. That's my answer. The mind shifter has spoken. <laughs> what a great last thought. This has been an incredible conversation, fun as well. You're a little too relaxed and you have a little too much of a tendency to smile, which is kind of annoying, but <laughs> I'm just <laughs> It's clear that you have a tremendous amount of energy around what you do. I would almost want to elevate you to a little higher stature and say that you're, to me, you're almost like an evangelist. <laughs> and we need more of those. I do my fair share. You're doing your fair share. I've met some other really interesting people that you know well that are out there in the podcasting world and other places. And we need to continue to be telling the story. And it's at noon, a different story. It's a story not about the past, but it's a story about the future. I thank you very much for being my guest today on the Softest Deal podcast, my friend. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Softest Steel podcast with your host, Dennis Duran. Dennis is the author of Softest Steel and a leading speaker and trainer for organizations across many industries and verticals. To learn more about the work Dennis is doing to activate soft skills in the workplace, contact him at DennisDuranSpeaking.com. Be sure to check out his book, Softest Steel, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. And please remember to share this episode with your friends, colleagues, and anyone you feel would benefit from the conversation. We'll see you next time on the Softest Steel Podcast.
with Dennis Duran. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.